The New Testament reading is Luke 24, verses 36 through 49, and then the sermon text will be Psalm 18. Psalm 18. Luke 24, beginning in verse 36. Uh, the setting here is Jesus after he has already been crucified, buried, and after he is raised, uh, he is meeting with his disciples and, and he's teaching them in his resurrection. So this is a very special period of time where Jesus was upon the earth for 40 days after his resurrection from the dead. And here we read in Luke 24, 36, As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, referring here to the, the marks that the nails left. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Let's go now to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. The title of this psalm is original to the psalm, and it is important that we read it. Psalm 18, the title, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. 
The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and He sent out His arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. He sent from on high, He took me, He drew me out of the many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me and His statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my ways blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supports me, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord but He did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. One of my objectives in this brief sermon series is to show you how to read the Psalms like a Christian. That is one of the things that I want to accomplish as we spend some time in the Psalms. I want to show you how to read the Psalms like a Christian. A Christian believes that Jesus of Nazareth 
is the Messiah, or the Anointed One, or the Christ. Really, no matter which term we choose, Messiah, Anointed One, or Christ, we are saying the same thing. We believe that Jesus of Nazareth was and is the promised King who has come in the line of David. He is the Savior. Of course, Jesus is more than our King. He is also our prophet and priest. And so this one man, Jesus, fulfilled all three of these offices. As our great prophet, He has revealed the will of God for our salvation. This is what prophets do. They reveal uh, the will of God. This is what they did. And Christ is our prophet. As our great high priest, He has reconciled us to God by offering Himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. And He makes continual intercession for us. This is what the priests of old did. They offered up sacrifices and interceded on behalf of the people. And Christ is our great priest. He is the fulfillment of this. And He is our King also. As our great King, He subdues us to Himself. He rules and defends us. And He restrains and conquers all His and all our enemies. And so... The one Christ has fulfilled all three offices. He is the prophet. He is the priest. He is the king of God's people. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. He is the Savior. Now, this idea that God would send a Savior is very old. In fact, it is nearly as old as sin itself. Soon after Adam fell into sin, God graciously announced that a Savior would be provided. But the good news that was delivered to Adam and Eve in those days was vague. It was very mysterious. The Lord spoke to the serpent who brought the temptation to Eve and through her to Adam, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is Genesis 3.15. You've heard it many times here at Emmaus. This was good news. It was good news indeed. Adam and Eve would not be immediately judged. The human race would continue on. There would be the seed of the woman. She would give birth to, to children and those children to, to children. So there is good news here indeed. Uh, but the greatest news of all was that someone would arise from the seed of the woman. And in due time would be our champion who would crush the head of the serpent. That is Satan. The champion would arise from the seed of the woman. In other words, he would be human. The serpent would do him harm. The serpent would bruise his heel. But the seed of the woman would have the victory in the end. The seed of the woman would stomp upon the head of the serpent and deliver a final and fatal blow. Again, this is good news. But it was vague. There was much mystery. Who would this Savior be? When would He come? What would He be like? What would He do? But the promise of the gospel was clear. It was clear enough for God's people, even in those days, to put their trust in God and in the Savior that He would provide. But it was mysterious still. This promise of the gospel, which was announced shortly after sin entered into the world, would grow in clarity with the passing of time and with the establishment of each new covenant that God transacted with His people. The gospel promise grew in clarity in the days of Noah, it grew in clarity in the days of Abraham and Moses. It grew in clarity yet again in the days of King David. As you know, a covenant was transacted with David, which clearly communicated that through him, that is to say, in his line of descendants, the kingdom of God would be established forever and ever. In the line of David, 
that is King David, the king of Israel, a king would arise who would win the victory for God and his people and establish an everlasting kingdom, one that would never come to an end. David was anointed as king of Israel, but he was not the anointed one. David's son Solomon was anointed as king of Israel after him. His kingdom was indeed powerful and glorious. He built God's temple. The nations took notice of all of this. But Solomon was not the anointed one. And Rehoboam took the throne after Solomon, and neither was he the anointed one. As Christians, when we say that we have turned from our sins and have placed our faith in Jesus the Christ, we are saying, among other things, we believe that this Jesus of Nazareth is the anointed one. He is the champion that was promised to Eve. He is the priest that was promised to Abraham. He is the prophet promised through Moses. And he is the king promised to David. He is the anointed one of God. He is the Messiah. And so when we read the Old Testament scriptures, we must read them as Christians. We must agree with what Jesus taught his disciples, that the Old Testament is about him. And this is what he said to his two disciples after his resurrection as he walked with them on the road to the town called Emmaus. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The scriptures that are referred to here are the Old Testament scriptures. We know that the New Testament scriptures had not been yet written. So Jesus interpreted to them in all of the scriptures, that is the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. And this includes the Psalms. Later that same night, Jesus appeared to his disciples who were assembled in Jerusalem. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. That little phrase, thus it is written, is interesting to me. I don't think you can go to the Old Testament and find this exact phrase anywhere. What was Jesus doing though? He was saying, if you consider it all, if you consider all of the prophecies, if you consider all of the types and shadows, if you consider all of that, I am the fulfillment of it and here is what it means. I'm the Messiah. I lived for you, I died for you, I rose from the grave for you, and this gospel that I am the Messiah, the champion, the Savior, is to be proclaimed not to the Jews only, but to the Gentiles also. Uh, this is what it means according to Christ. So there is a Christian way to understand the Old Testament Scriptures. The Christian way is to see Jesus of Nazareth as a fulfillment of the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. The Old Testament Scriptures are about Him. They contain promises prophecies, types, and shadows, all of which are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ and His eternal kingdom. Jesus taught this, and the New Testament Scriptures, which were written by His apostles or under their supervision, teach this. The Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms are about Jesus the Christ. They find their fulfillment in Him. And so the Psalms are about Jesus. Or to put it in another way, the Psalms are about King David in the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. 
I'll pause here for a moment and go on a bit of a tangent. At the end of our Sunday school lesson this morning, I made this point. We need to be careful to not read the Psalms in an overly devotional manner. I think that was an important point to make in the conclusion of our study of the Psalms. This means we are not to pick up the Psalms and to immediately ask the question, What does this mean to me now? (laughs) But we must first ask, What did it mean when, let's say, David wrote it? And how is it fulfilled in Christ? And now, what does it mean to me? You see, there are steps involved. We must read the Old Testament Scriptures, including the Psalms, as Christians, which means that we must see that the Psalms are about Jesus. There are some prophetic Psalms that are explicitly about Jesus, but I would argue that all of them are about Jesus in some way. The Psalms are about Jesus, or to put it another way, the Psalms are about King David and the establishment of the Kingdom of Israel. And if you are listening closely, you might say, wait a minute, those are two different things. How can you in one breath say the Psalms are about Jesus, and in the next breath, The Psalms are about King David. Which is it? Take your pick, Pastor. You cannot have it both ways. But in fact, both statements are true. The Psalms are about Jesus and they are about King David. This is so because Jesus is the fulfillment of David. And Christ's eternal kingdom is the fulfillment of the kingdom of Israel, over which David was king. These two things, David and his earthly kingdom... And Christ and His heavenly kingdom are one. They are organically related to one another in the way that an acorn is related to an oak tree. If I held a book up before you right now, a scientific book, and I said to you, this book is all about acorns. And then as you thumb through the pages of that book, you found out that it ended up being about oak trees. I did not lie to you, did I? Truly, The end of that book is about oak trees, but it is really about acorns, because the end of an acorn is what? An oak tree. You cannot really talk about acorns without talking about oak trees, can you? And in the same way, when I say the Psalms are about David and his kingdom, and then I say the Psalms are about Christ and his kingdom, I've not lied to you. I've not contradicted myself. For the end of the covenant that God transacted with King David is Christ and his eternal kingdom. You cannot really talk about David and Israel without getting to Christ and the kingdom of heaven, which is His, because the two are connected to one another in this organic fashion. The one was intended from the beginning to lead to the other. David is the seed, Christ is the tree. David is the prototype, Christ is the real deal. In David we find the promise, but in Christ we find the fulfillment. So when we read the Psalms, we must read them on these two levels. We must read them on the level of promise and then fulfillment, type and antitype, shadow and substance. This is what Christ taught us, and this is what the New Testament so clearly teaches. The Psalms were written about David and and, and the things that he experienced as the anointed king of Israel, but his person, that is David's person, and his works foreshadowed the person and work of his greater son, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. And so we must learn to read the Old Testament, the Psalms included, as as Christians. But you would be surprised at how many in our day who profess faith in Christ do not. In fact, many who profess Christ today read the Old Testament and preach the Old Testament in much the same way that the unbelieving Jews in Jesus' day read, read them as if they were merely about an earthly king and an earthly kingdom. 
some of this will just go right over some of your heads, I guess. But for those of you who've studied some of these things, you know exactly what I am referring to. There is this terrible tendency within modern, the modern church today to read the Old Testament as, as if it is primarily about earthly things. But Christ Himself spent time with His disciples in His resurrection and even in His earthly ministry trying to show them, no, 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 no. These earthly things, David and his earthly kingdom Israel, were really about me. And after Christ rose from the dead, we heard in that Luke 24 passage, their eyes were opened. And there, for the first time, they understood the Scriptures, that this this was really all about the resurrection from Christ from the dead, the defeat of death, the eternal kingdom, which is now His. It is, it is really marvelous. So we must work at this, uh, brothers and sisters. We must read the Scriptures, Old Testament and New, as Christians. We must see that these Old Testament things are not merely about an earthly king and an earthly kingdom. No, the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus the Christ and His heavenly kingdom. And here I quote 2 Corinthians 1.20, which says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. I love that little verse. It's so succinct. The Old Testament Scriptures are filled with promises. And where do they all land? They land at Christ's feet. They all find their yes in Him. He is the fulfillment of them. More can be said. But for the sake of time, let us move on to Psalm 18, finally. This is a very long psalm, too. I'm not going to be able to touch on every phrase, as I typically do. Instead, I'm going to highlight its sections. I'm going to draw your attention to its main point, showing what they meant to David and how they were fulfilled in Christ and how they apply to you and to me today. I'm not going to be able to deal with all of the details, but you will get the gist of it. The title reveals to us the circumstances which prompted David to write the psalm. These titles that you see in the Psalter are are very important. It, continue, it says here, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. And so like Moses and the prophet, Moses the prophet and Aaron the priest, David was the servant of the Lord. He was the servant king. And this is true on a deeper level of Christ, our great prophet, priest, and king. Christ is God's ultimate servant king. And the title also reveals the circumstances which prompted David to write this psalm. It continues, Who addressed the words of this song, it was a song, remember, to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so this psalm is about the deliverance of God's warrior, servant, king from trouble. That is what this psalm is about. The historical context of this psalm is actually well known for this very same psalm is found almost word for word in 2 Samuel chapter 22. David spoke these words to the Lord after he had been delivered from all his enemies and his kingdom was made secure. In the second half of 1 Samuel and in 2 Samuel we learn all about David's enemies. 2 Samuel begins with the announcement that David's first and greatest enemy, Saul, had died. But it goes on to describe the many conflicts that David endured as he took the throne and established his reign. David's own son, Absalom, rebelled against him and was put down. The Philistines were a constant problem for him. Uh, These are just two examples of David's enemies. But David did eventually conquer these enemies. And when he did, he sang this psalm to the Lord. He finally had subdued all of his enemies. His kingdom was secure. Of course, it wasn't perfectly secure, but it was, 
It, it was secure. He sat down upon his throne here uh, in, in, in peace at this moment. And he, that is when he sang this psalm to the Lord. And so, please make this connection before we move on. King David took possession of his kingdom through conflict and struggle. And King Jesus took possession of his kingdom through conflict and struggle. Both were required to defeat their enemies to make their kingdom secure. David defeated earthly enemies, Saul, Absalom, and the Philistines, to name a few. But Christ defeated much stronger enemies, Satan, sin, and death. This He did not only for the Jews, but for the Gentiles also. And then He sat down upon His heavenly throne. This psalm, Psalm 18, is about the victory which God gave to David... But I am saying to you that it is more about the victory that Jesus has won. It is more about that. We know that this psalm is about the Christ, for this is what Paul the Apostle teaches when he quotes Psalm 18.49 in Romans 15.8-10. Are you tracking along with me right now? So, Psalm 18 verse 49 is actually picked up by Paul the Apostle, and it is used in Romans 15, verses 8 through 10, where he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And so notice that Paul refers to Christ as a servant, echoing the title of Psalm 18, which we have just read. And then he quotes verse 49, which is near the end of this psalm, Psalm 18, teaching that it was fulfilled not by David ultimately, but by Jesus Christ. It was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Yes, David would praise God amongst the Gentiles and sing to His name, but when Paul, as one who believed that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah... When he considered Psalm 18, he knew that it was ultimately about Jesus, David's son. Jesus is God's servant, king. Jesus is the king who would have the nations as his inheritance. So as Christians, we must confess that this psalm is not merely about David, nor is it merely about the nation of Israel. No, the psalm is about the establishment of God's kingdom through conflict, rescue, and victory. First experienced by David, and then as experienced by Christ Jesus, David's greater son. And this is the Christian interpretation. This is the interpretation that the New Testament provides for us. You will notice that this psalm begins with an expression of praise. David says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So there is energy to this psalm. Do you feel it? I mean, this is just rapid. David is clearly excited about what the Lord has done for him and he is clearly eager to give praise to the Lord. You've probably heard that David was a man after God's own heart. Have you ever heard that about him? The Bible says that he was. He was a man after God's own heart. Some misunderstand that. It would be a mistake to think that David was perfect. He was far from it. We know that he was far from it. His sins are chronicled for us in the pages of Holy Scripture. And they are there for a reason. I think, among other things, to say, anointed one of God, but not the anointed one. Anointed one of God, but not the Messiah. 
So he was far from perfect, but David did love the Lord sincerely. Do you see it here in the psalm? He loved the Lord sincerely. He did trust the Lord deeply. His longing, as imperfect as he was, was to see the Lord's purposes accomplished in and through him. And in this sense, he was a man after God's own heart. He viewed himself as a servant of the Lord, and he did run to the Lord for strength. I love you, O Lord, the psalm begins. And I think, what a marvelous and warm opening to this psalm. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord was David's strength. He did not trust, even as king, in his own strength. He did not trust in chariots or armies ultimately, but in the Lord. And then David heaps up metaphors to describe what God is to him. There's a bunch of them here in the first few verses. The Lord is my rock, he says. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. He's my shield. He's the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold. And you can tell that David was king based upon the metaphors that he chose. These are the kinds of things that a king would be really interested in, you know, to have a rock to stand upon firm ground, to have a fortress, to have a strong horn, as it were, to defeat his enemies with. So you could tell that he was a king based upon these metaphors. But the point is this, David's trust was not in earthly things, that is to say earthly fortresses, etc., but in the Lord. This was true for David. Indeed, he did entrust himself to the Lord. But it was so much more true of Christ. I quote here 1 Peter 2.22, which says that he, Jesus the Christ, committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, that is, God. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So this is, this is what was characteristic of Jesus the Christ. He suffered, he endured trial and tribulation. But what did he do continuously? He entrusted himself to the Lord. You and I are to do that very thing. David was to do that very thing. But we do it imperfectly. Christ did it perfectly so. He entrusted himself to the Lord. So what about you? Do you share David's love for the Lord? Do you trust the Lord to keep you and to deliver you from all of his and our enemies? Are you certain that He will deliver you even from death? Is the Lord your rock? Is the Lord your fortress? Is He your deliverer, the shield, the horn of your salvation? Is He your stronghold? Or is your trust in something else? And friends, I think it is important to make this point from the outset that no one else will be able to deliver you from death. No one else will. Only the Lord will. Only His Messiah will. And so we, like David, must trust in the Lord, and in the Lord's anointed. We must take refuge in Him. In fact, this is the very thing which threatened David. It was death that threatened him. In verses 4-19, through 19, God's deliverance is described. And it was nothing short of deliverance from death. Notice what David says in verse 4. He says, The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Now it is impossible to know for certain what experience David is referring to here. For he had, he had many near-death experiences. We know that he was threatened often by Saul and his men. 
He was very vulnerable when he fled to Achish, the king of Gath, for refuge. Um, and he was nearly killed by his own son, Absalom, who led a rebellion against him. He had to flee his own palace, his own city, because of the strength of his son, Absalom. In each of these instances, David must have felt as if the cords of death and the cords of Sheol were entangling him and tightening their grip. I think it is very clear to us what the cords and snares of death are. David is saying, I, I, I was on the verge I was almost destroyed. I almost went down into the grave. But what are the cords of Sheol? Uh, Sheol is simply another way to speak of death. For Sheol is the place where the souls of the dead dwell. Prior to the death and resurrection of Christ, the wicked were tormented in Sheol, and the righteous were comforted there. But when Christ rose from the dead, He led the souls of the righteous out of Sheol, or Abraham's bosom as it is also called, and into heaven now after the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the souls of the righteous do go immediately into heaven where they enjoy the blessed presence of God. But the souls of the wicked still suffer torment in Sheol where they await the resurrection and the final judgment. And so David, being a righteous man, living before the resurrection of Christ, ascribed his near-death experience with these words, rather described his near-death experience with these words, the cords of death encompassed me, and again, the cords of Sheol they entangled me. They were there all about me and they were tightening their grip. I felt as if I was about to depart from this world, is what David is communicating. And, and as I said, it is difficult to know for sure what experience David had in mind when he said this. What experience did he have in mind? But the most fitting experience, to me at least, would be the one where David and his men hid from Saul and his men in the cave in the wilderness of Engedi. David was trapped there in that place. He was outnumbered. And as he went down into that dark cave for a refuge to hide from Saul and his men, it must have felt as if he and his men were descending into Sheol, metaphorically speaking. They probably wondered if they would ever see the light of day again. They wondered if that cave would become the grave for their bodies and if their souls would depart from there to Sheol. But what did David do? He called upon the name of the Lord. The Lord heard his voice from his heavenly abode, and he delivered him from death. In verses 7 through 19, David describes the deliverance with these words, and I will read them rapidly and I will make some brief remarks about them, but just listen to the description of the deliverance that the Lord provided for David. Again, then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on, the cherub, on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness as covering his canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and He sent out His arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at Your rebuke, O Lord, the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. He sent from on high, He took me, He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place and rescued me because He delighted in me. The imagery that David uses here 
I think, should send our minds in two directions. First, our minds should go backwards from David's time in the history of redemption to the days of Moses, to the Exodus event, that is to say, to the ten plagues and the parting of the sea, to the giving of the law on Sinai and to the eventual conquest of Canaan, wherein Israel was brought out into a broad place. I wonder if you could track along with me here and see that that's the kind of deliverance that is being described here. There's imagery that that finds its source in the Exodus event and and in the eventual conquest here in David's uh, description. You will need to read these verses again on your own and compare the imagery used by David here to the Exodus event. But it is no wonder that he used this imagery. He saw the deliverance that the Lord had accomplished for him in light of the deliverance that God had accomplished for Israel when He brought them out of Egypt. Just as God rescued Israel from death, so too God rescued David from death. I think that is what is going on here. David was delivered by the Lord many times. But as he describes that deliverance, he's drawing upon God's previous acts of deliverance, saying, just as you acted for Israel to bring them out of Egypt and through the waters, when the the channels of the earth were, were laid bare, so on and so forth, just as you did that, and just as you appeared to them on Sinai, and just as you led them into the, the, the promised land through the Jordan River. You've done that same thing for me now. I think this is a very helpful thing for us to do, brothers and sisters, when we are facing trials of various kinds. Not only to focus upon our circumstances, not only to focus upon the direct promises of God and Holy Scripture, but to read even the narrative of Holy Scripture. To see that God has been faithful to deliver His people time and time again, and He will certainly be faithful to preserve us in our moment and with our own unique Challenges that face us. And so our minds are to go backwards, just as I think David's mind went backwards in time to the Exodus event. Secondly, our minds should jump forward from David's time in the history of redemption to the days of Christ, to His crucifixion, His burial, and His resurrection. I want you to think of how the earth shook and how the land was covered in darkness when Christ was crucified. Again, I think the imagery that David uses to describe his own deliverance is to remind us of God's deliverance of Israel, but it also foreshadows the deliverance that God would accomplish for Christ, a much greater deliverance. Christ would be delivered not from Saul. Christ would be delivered from Satan himself, from the pains of death itself. Christ would defeat sin itself on our behalf. God would deliver him. That is the difference There's a great difference between the deliverance that God worked for David and the deliverance that God worked for Christ. God kept David from death, but God raised Jesus from the dead. Do you see the difference? God kept David from Sheol, but God rescued Jesus out of Sheol and gave him the victory over it. David was made victorious in life, whereas Jesus won the victory over death and Sheol itself. Indeed, Jesus is the first and the last and the living one. He died, and behold, He is alive forevermore, and He has the keys of death and Hades. It is Revelation 1, 17-18. Do you hear it? That is the victory that He has won. And for this reason, we are to fear not. For this reason... We are to fear not. We are not even to fear death, brothers and sisters, because our Savior, 
the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, has won the victory. To put it differently, if you imagine Jesus in His resurrection saying, The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I cried for help. From His temple He heard my voice. And my cry to Him reached His ears. Again, that is Psalm 18.4-6. These words take on a whole new level of meaning, don't they? When you hear them coming from David's mouth, they mean one thing. But when you hear them coming from Jesus' mouth, they mean a whole other thing. Both true. But there are these two levels of meaning that we must be aware of. Who knows? I think it is possible that Jesus did quote from Psalm 18 when He met with His disciples on the Emmaus Road and with the others later that night back in Jerusalem. We don't know for sure. But He opened up the Scriptures and He showed, listen, the Law and the Prophets the Psalms are all about Me. Maybe He read from Psalm 18. Maybe He said this meant one thing to David, but look at what it means for Me. Something far, far greater. When we hear these words on David's lips, we, we imagine him being in trouble, but alive on earth, perhaps trapped in a dark cave. But you would imagine these same words on Jesus' lips. Where do you imagine him being? You, you imagine him being dead, his body in the grave, his soul in Sheol. Jesus was delivered not from death, but through death, for he did taste death for us. You can see Hebrews 2.9 about that. Indeed, God did send from on high. He took Christ. He drew Him out of the many waters. He rescued Him from His strong enemy and from those who hated Him. The Lord was His support. He brought Him out into a broad place. He rescued Him because He delighted in Him. Did God delight in David? Well, yes, He did. Did God delight in Jesus the Christ, David's greater son? Oh, yes. Uh, Jesus the Christ was the beloved Son of God in a way that no one else is. Verses 3-19 through 19 tell of the deliverance that God accomplished for David, but really this is about the deliverance that God accomplished for Christ. God did not merely deliver Jesus from death. No, God raised Him from the dead. That is what Acts 13.30 says. And friends, I ask you this question, do you believe this? You say, of course we do. No, no but really, do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ was raised from the dead and has the victory over death. And if you believe this, do you believe it truly and sincerely so that it brings great comfort, hope, and confidence in life and even in death? I've heard it said before that the job of the pastor is to prepare the members of his church to die well. Have you ever heard it put that way? I have. It's kind of a morbid perspective on pastoral ministry, I will admit. But I think it is very true. There's more to pastoral ministry, of course. As one of your pastors, I do also want to see you live well. But I suppose the two things are related, aren't they? Living well and dying well. They're related to one another. But one thing I know for sure, you will not die well if you are not certain that Jesus Christ, your Savior, died for you and in your place. His body went into the grave, his soul to Sheol, but from there he was raised, body and soul. And he was raised not only for himself, but for you and me and all who are in him, in him by faith. God raised him from the dead, Acts 13.30. And those who are in Christ are confident that they too will be raised just as he was raised. We will not die well, brothers and sisters, if we do not truly believe this. Death will still have a certain kind of 
authority over us, you know. We will still be in bondage to it in a certain way if we do not truly believe this. We've been freed from the fear of death, though. Why? Because Christ has conquered it. In verses 20 through 36 of our passage, David tells us why God delivered him. For the sake of time, I'm going to leave it to you to read verses 20 through 36 again. And I'm going to ask you to read these verses on two levels. First, read them as David's words, and then read them as Christ's words. And again, you will see that they were true for David on one level, but they were true for Christ on a whole another level. God delivered David because he was righteous, blameless, merciful, pure, and humble. If you know the history of David, the story of David, you know this was only true in a sense. David was righteous only in the way that you and I can be righteous, for he was a sinner like us. He was made righteous through faith in Christ, his own descendant. And he was righteous, but only in a religious sense, I might say. He was righteous in the sense that he was faithful to God and he was devout. We know that he was not righteous and pure in an absolute sense. The scriptures are so very clear about this. So these verses are true of David. And whatever righteousness David did have, even that was owed to the grace of God alone. David himself says in this passage, beginning with verse 27, For you save humble people, Verse 28, For it is you who light my lamp. Verse 30, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Verse 31, For who is God but the Lord, and who is His rock except God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. On and on I can go. But throughout this passage there is this this admission of David that whatever righteousness I do have, it's owed to God and to His grace. I've done right, but even that is because God has strengthened me to be, to be righteous and to be faithful before Him. And so David is not here claiming to be righteous in and of himself. No, but he was righteous in God and in His anointed. And for this reason, God delivered him because God delighted in him. But if you read these same words as if from Jesus the Christ, the Son of David, they rise to a higher level again, don't they? Christ was righteous, absolutely he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, 1 Peter 2.22. And for this reason God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because he was not, it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him in, Psalm, in the Psalms, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full of gladness with your presence. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And this was how Peter preached the gospel as recorded in Acts 2, 24-28. That's what I just quoted here. When Peter preached the gospel after Christ rose from the dead and ascended, this is how he preached it. He preached it from the Scriptures, that is say from the Old Testament, saying this is really about Jesus. He is risen. And so, these words here raise to a higher level when we read them as if from Christ. Verses 37 through 45 now uh, do not describe deliverance from trouble, but the king's victory over all his enemies. And so the situation is advanced here. No longer does the king feel as if the cords of Sheol are entangling him. 
No longer is his rescue described. Now the king is described as victorious. Now he conquers his enemies. You will note here that some of the enemies of, of the king are consumed. Verse 37, I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. Verse 42, also, I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. And I think this should remind us of what was said concerning the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2, which we considered last week. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here the victory of the king is described and we see that some of the king's enemies are consumed. They are destroyed. They are judged. But others, you will notice, surrender to the king. Or to use the language of Psalm 2 once more, others take refuge in the Lord's anointed. Look at verse 43. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. So here we have other enemies of God come and pay homage to the king of Israel. They come and they surrender to him. They tremble before him. And again, this was certainly David's experience. After he was anointed king, he ran from Saul, but God delivered him. And after God delivered him, he gave him victory over all of his enemies and made his kingdom secure. And this is what David is celebrating in this psalm. And such was the experience of Christ, David's greater son. He obtained his kingdom through trial and tribulation. He suffered. He died. But his soul was not abandoned to Hades, and neither was his body abandoned in the grave. He was raised. And after he was raised in glory, he ascended. And when he ascended, what did he do, brothers and sisters? He sat down on his throne at the Father's right hand. And there he reigns presently until his enemies are made his footstool. At the final judgment, you may see Luke 20, verses 41 through 44 about that. There he reigns. He reigns now until his enemies are made his footstool and until his elect are gathered from every tongue, tribe, and nation. They will be summoned by the gospel and they will be subdued by the Holy Spirit. They will say, Jesus is Lord, and they will take refuge in the Anointed One. And in this way, both in judgment and in salvation, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I had a conversation with someone just yesterday about this. I said, Pastor, isn't it true that everyone's going to confess that Jesus is Lord at the end of time? I think he was wondering if everyone would be saved. I said, yes, it is true that everyone will say Jesus is Lord at the end of time. But they will say it with Jesus either as Savior or as Judge. Either as Savior or as Judge. Some will not surrender to Him, and so they will have Jesus as judge, but others will come to Him and, and come to Him for refuge, and they will have Him as Savior. And so, friends, we must know for certain that Christ will have the victory. He will have dominion over all, either as Savior or as judge. And I ask, what is He to you? What is He to you? Everyone who has ever lived is in a relationship with Christ. Did you know that? It's not just the Christians who have a relationship with Christ. Everyone has one. He is either Savior or He is Judge. And again, I think it is important to impress this upon you. This question, what is He to you? I can return now to the second psalm to urge you to turn from your sins and to trust in Him. 
with these words. Now therefore, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now in verses 46 through 50 we find a doxology or a concluding praise. Hear it now. The Lord lives, David says, and blessed be my rock and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and who subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing your name. Great salvation He brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to David and his offspring forever. These are the words of King David. But more than this, they are the words of Christ. Verse 49 is that verse that Paul quotes in Romans 15.10. But as I have taught you before, when you read the New Testament and its quotations of the Old, or even when you read the Old Testament quotations of the Old, do not read only the particular verse that is cited. No, take a look around you. Take a look around you. What Paul wants us to see when he quotes this verse in Romans 15, what Paul wants us to see is that Jesus Christ is not only the fulfillment of verse 49, but of this whole psalm. He is the fulfillment of this whole psalm. Jesus is the servant king. Jesus is the one who was delivered from his enemies, from the man of violence and from death itself. And Jesus is the one who is victorious. He rules and reigns supreme. He has the nations as his inheritance. And what is his goal? We are told here what his goal is. The goal is the glory of God among the nations. The goal is the glory of God among the nations. I'll conclude this sermon by reading 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28, which makes this point so beautifully. Like David, but even more purely, the goal of Christ is the glory of God the Father amongst the nations. Paul says here, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive." but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. That is a beautiful passage. Who has put out all things under Christ's feet? God the Father has. But there will come a time when, when all is made new, when all is brought to its consummation, where Christ will deliver all that He has earned to the Father, so that God gets the glory. So that God gets the glory amongst the nations. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, help us to see Christ in all the scriptures, Old Testament and New. May we see that He is the Savior, the Anointed One of God, who has paid for sins. He is our great champion King. He is the servant King. Father, I pray for all who have heard this sermon today, that they would be found in Him, that they would take refuge in Him. 
that they would have Him as Savior and not judge. Father, make us aware of our sin, cause us to turn from it and to run to Christ for refuge. We thank You for Him and the victory He has won and the hope that He brings to our heart. Lord, help us to live with this confidence that He has provided for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.